turn to Romans chapter 3. One of the most uh, difficult things about going to court is just kind of the whole unexpected, like what in the world is going to happen? Now, if you're a part of the police force or you're a lawyer or a judge or you're a court official, you're pretty familiar with judicial proceedings and the whole dynamics of our court system. And so it's, you know, I kind of know what to expect. Large part of us, we really don't want to go to court, right? And if we're there, we're feeling pretty nervous about that. We'd prefer to kind of keep our distance. But when you come to Romans chapter 3, as we've made our way through this book, when you hit verse 9, it's as if you have stepped into a courtroom scene. And God is going to systematically lay out the condition of the human heart. And it's going to begin when you come to chapter 3, verse 9, with God's charge that all of humanity is under sin. Look at it, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So Paul is writing to the Roman, uh, the, the Christians that are in Rome, and he's saying, are, are we better than they? Absolutely not. We're all cut from the same bolt of cloth. We all come from the same mold. We are all under sin. And that doesn't mean that simply we're beneath sin, but actually when it says under sin, it's that sin dominates us. We are totally under sin's power, its authority, its control. It shows up in our will. It shows up in our minds. It even shows up in our bodies and the fact that they're always deteriorating and falling apart. We are under sin, and it portrays sin like a taskmaster and an evil one at that, and that we cannot but help ourselves. We act sinfully because we are sinful. And the whole idea of sin means to miss the mark. And it shows up all the way with, remember Eve kind of thought she knew better than God, even though she had clear understanding that they weren't supposed to eat of the particular fruit of this particular tree. It's like, you know, that appeals to me. I kind of like the idea that this serpent telling me that I can be like God. I think I'll do that. I'll have it my way. I know better than God. That kind of mentality is indicative of sin. And God's charge is that all whether you're a Jew or you're a Greek. Now, you need to know that for the Jewish people to actually even consider that they were sinful, that no, they actually felt they were righteous by virtue of their nationality. And the Greeks, uh, or they sometimes call them Gentiles, they assumed that they were sinful by the fact that they weren't Jewish. To say that Jews and Greeks, like he has been presenting all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to this verse, to show that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, and that's the indictment that is made, well, they would find that to be very difficult to bear. And so that is the charge, and now God is going to systematically give evidence that all of humanity, each individual, is under sin. And the evidence is that all of humanity has sinned against God and other people. You're going to find 13 like indictments that are going to come, and they're going to come very systematically to show that the world is guilty of sin, each individual. And so he begins by actually starting in verse 10 to start laying these out. Now, why does God take sin in people so seriously? Why does he do that? That is because humanity is made and created in the image of God. It's what makes him distinct from all animals, and that God has created mankind to represent him, 
to know his glory and to reflect his character. And so when we come to the idea of sinfulness in man, we could call it total depravity. And if you're like, well, what, what does that mean? Well, that means that sin affects every area of a person's life, our minds, our wills, our bodies. Total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity, meaning that we are as wicked as we can be. Because in reality, we could be far more sinful than we actually are. So it doesn't mean utter depravity, but it means that sin influences and affects every aspect of our life. And God is going to use his word to show how that is true. So beginning in verse 10, he says, as it is written, he's going to say, let me show you how sin is manifested in a person's character. He says, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who perfectly follows God, worships him from the heart, and lives as they were created or designed. There's not even one. There is only one exception to this rule. And that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Son of God, he existed from all eternity. He actually enters into humanity in the incarnation. And he lived a perfect, righteous, holy life, completely set apart to the Father to live the Father's will. He is the only one that is righteous. But when it comes to mankind, there is none righteous, not even one. He goes on to say, for there are none, verse 11, who understands. There's really no one who understands God's righteousness, what's involved, what it looks like, how it is lived out. There, he goes on to say, not only are there none who understands, but verse 11, there are none who seek after God. Man's attempt to escape from the one true God is what we call the world religions. Because mankind would like to have God on his terms, And so they don't understand righteousness, they don't understand, and they do not seek after God. Pastor Adrian Rogers said this, that an atheist can't find God for the very same reason that a thief can't find a policeman, okay? It's because they're not looking for him. They don't don't want to be found. And that is true for people. They're not seeking after God. And you're like, well, wait a second here. I I thought we we have seeker churches, we have seeker-sensitive folks, right? Actually... God isn't playing a hide-and-go-seek game with humanity. And when we see people and they say that they're seekers, oftentimes they're not seeking God, but they're seeking the blessings that come from God. They seek like they've got anxiety issues. They need strength. They're dealing with guilt. They want spiritual peace. They want some sort of experience so that they'll be made feel alive. But notice the self-centered orientation. It's about, I want this. I need this. I want these experiences. I want this sensation. I want this feeling. I want my guilt to be dealt with. And so what they're really looking for are the blessings of God, but that is far different than seeking God, to know God as he really is, to see yourself aligned with him, to love him, to worship him, No, there's a lot of folks, they want the benefits of God, but they are fleeing from the person of God. That's why he says there is none who seeks for God. And by the way, this this is kind of our American culture. If you uh, look at just how apathetic spiritually people are today, December 2011, USA Today had taken a conglomeration of various studies, including one that was done by Baylor University of just kind of what is the religious tenor of America. And they said the whole attitude could be summed up with these two words, 
so what? People could care less. So when Baylor University did their study and they published all the results, it was in the newspaper, they found that 44% of all their respondents, and this is a pretty wide-sweeping uh, study, 44% of the people said they spent no time ever seeking eternal wisdom. Why? Could care less. In fact, 19% said it's useless to search for meaning. And so that's why the Scripture says there are none who seeks for God. Furthermore, verse 12, he says, To all have turned aside, together they have become useless. This word turned aside, this was the word that means to literally run in the wrong direction. It was used of those who were deserting in an army, who were running, instead of to the battle and to the line of fire, they were running away. They were deserting their ranks. He says, all have turned aside, together they have become useless. And the Hebrew equivalent for this Greek term was used for like milk that had gone sour and rancid. It's not good for drinking or consuming or making cheese or butter. He says, together they have all become useless. And so he goes on to say, not only that, but there is none who does good at this point. And I know, I know you're like, I don't know about this. Really? Are we really that bad? I mean, we like, there's something in us that says, no, we're actually pretty good. Yeah, we're not perfect. But he, when he says there's, there's none who does good, well, that's like, hey, wait a second, got to draw the line there. I think I can to- show you even before I knew Christ that I, I did some good things. I got friends, I got coworkers. They do good stuff. They do good things. So... Wow, my experience is that folks do do good things. Here's the Bible, verse 12, saying that none who does good. And I'll tell you, you know what? Non-believers, they can do really good things. They can do things that are courageous, uh, noteworthy, goodness expressed in mercy and the welfare of others. But let me help you understand what goodness looks like from a biblical perspective. Goodness is not only an external action, It is also stemming from an internal motive. When the the Bible speaks of good works or good deeds, it is speaking of those actions that come from a heart that truly loves God, wants to honor Him, and to basically demonstrate or display the likeness or the character of God to His fellow mankind. That's what it means when He speaks of good You see, the person who does good deeds, sometimes people actually think that by doing good deeds, I'm either earning God's favor or I'm keeping God happy. But in actuality, good deeds are to be sourced from a heart that truly loves God and operates on the principle of faith. So let me give you an example. Let's say that we all are familiar with you shall not steal. So let's say you go into a store and you see some stuff like, that'd be nice, I'd like to have that don't really have the money for that, but I could actually pick this up and I could put it in my purse or my pocket. No one would know the difference, right? But you don't. So externally, you do the good deed of, in a sense, I don't steal. I don't steal from the person that owns the store. I don't, I don't actually take the item. But see, that's only half of the equation. If it's not stemming from a heart that I love God and I want to honor Him, I operate from the principle of faith, then it's not truly a good deed as God would define it. And so he says, there is none who does good. You and I 
apart from the work of God in our heart, you're kidding yourself if you think that you're good. It shows up in our character. He says there is not even one. We find that we are guilty before God because our character demonstrates that. But not only our character, also our conversation. Look at verse 13. He says their throat is an open grave. Okay? Now, now he's talking about uh, like an open grave. Now, in, in Israel, and it was practiced throughout really the Roman Empire, they didn't allow human bodies. When you died, they were buried generally within the day, okay? And there was a couple reasons for that. They wanted to honor those who had passed away, but they also realized that there was a biological hazard, okay? And so in Israel, there would be the burial, and not only would they bury the individual very soon after death, but then they would cover it up, put rocks on it, and they would put these like whitewashed stones. And they would do so, not only did you see like, okay, here's someone that is buried, but it was also kind of like a warning. You want to stay clear because of just the biological hazards of actually contracting disease or some of the deteriorations taking place. You wanted to stay far away from that. Remember when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he said, you know what? You guys are kind of like whitewashed tombs. You look all bright and shiny on the outside, and you're drawing a lot of attention to yourself. And they did. They got the robes, they got the religious garment, they could turn it on whenever they needed to be. They demanded respect, they were highly self-righteous, they looked holy. But Jesus said, you know what, you're like whitewashed tombs. You see, inside, there is an utter deterioration of your soul. And that's what he's saying, their throat is like an open grave. And it's like, remember what Jesus said, your mouth speaks from that which fills your heart. If you want to know what's going on in your heart, just listen to your words. What's coming out? And it it indicates, indeed, this text is true. There is rottenness inside us. There is something that is not right. He goes on to say, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The, The mouth, the tongue gets a lot of press in Scripture. Have you ever noticed that? Both in the Old Testament and in the New. Like in the book of James, James chapter 3 predominantly deals with the fact that your tongue is utterly powerful. Yeah, you can use it to worship God, and you can use it to totally tear a person apart. It's like he says, like it's like a rudder on a ship. It's really small. I mean, your tongue, it's really a small part of your body, but it can be highly destructive. Just like a little rudder can completely change the direction of a ship, so your mouth, it has a lot of power. He also said your tongue is kind of like like a spark. You could create a forest fire with a spark. Did you know that? Your tongue, it can create that kind of devastation. He says their tongues keep deceiving. Uh, This word deceive comes from the basic meaning of lure, and it's to lure by like baiting a hook, okay? So if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, you know how this works. What do you do? You get something that the fish thinks is like dinner, okay? Like a worm, and you put it on the hook. It is actually meant to deceive the fish, right? That's how it works. You want the fish to think like, hey, there's lunch, right? But in actuality, they bite into that little worm, and lo and behold, there is a hook inside there, and they thought they were going to have dinner. They become dinner for the fishermen. You see, with our mouth, we deceive, and we, we actually have a way of contorting the truth, 
misrepresenting situations, misrepresenting ourselves, oftentimes, so that we will look better. He goes on to say, not only do it with our tongues we keep deceiving, but he says, verse 13, the poison of asps is under our lips. And an asp is a snake. And let me just remind you how it works with the snakes. If a snake feels threatened, okay, if it's a venomous snake, they have these fangs in the upper part of their jaw, and they drop down, poof, right? They feel threatened, and whatever, the predator, or it's you, what happens is they're going to lash out, and they're gonna, those fangs sink in, and from them, there's these little sacks of venom, and they are injected into whatever they think is threatening, and it can be deadly. That's what God is saying here as he has the Apostle Paul write this under the inspiration of the Spirit. The poison of asps is under our lips. We have the ability to blaspheme God. We can tear people apart. We use our tongues for profanity. In fact, profanity has become so widespread, we, we just kind of like, it's just life. We use it for grumbling, complaining, tearing people apart, gossip, character assassination, lies, backbiting, all of this. You know where it comes from? It comes from the reality that we're sinful. And all you have to do is look at your words. He goes on to say, verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Cursing, the idea of swearing or taking God's name in vain, it is so commonplace that we, we have grown accustomed to it. We don't even flinch anymore. It used to be like you wouldn't, well, you wouldn't, you're not going to hear that on TV or not on the radio. Nah, that all flies now, right? Movies, it becomes so commonplace. But you need to know that it, this, this cursing and this bitterness, this caustic cynicism, what it really is is reflective of a human heart that is dead in trespasses and sins. And he says, it, it shows up, not, our sinfulness, it shows up not only in our character, it shows up in our conversation, but it also shows up in our conduct. He's just systematically laying it out. And you can't you start seeing this even in your own self? He says, you know what? It shows up in your conduct, in your behavior. Look at verse 15. Your feet are swift to shed blood. Literally, you're in a hurry for violence. And the whole idea of inflicting violence, I'll take matters in my own hands. I mean, we... We are a people that could be characterized by violence. And far from getting better, it's actually getting worse. We actually like to be entertained by violence. The gorier, the better. And it's not enough just to see it on TV. We actually have games that are so realistic in their violence. And the, the, not only are you shooting these people and cutting them, the blood, it's like, it's right there. It is, you hear the sounds, you see it, and we call it entertainment. Our feet are swift to shed blood. It's, it gets started even with our infants. Did you know that? We got little babies that are, we believe could be the safest place, the safest environment for them to grow and to flourish and to thrive. There's mother's womb. And you know what abortion is, don't you? It's literally the tearing apart of a, of a life, physically. Their feet are swift to shed violence. This is America. But not only is it not safe in a mother's womb, you're not even safe being out on the streets. 
And if you look at the ongoing assaults of, and murders that take place in our country, just look at the newspaper. Look at the Waco Trib. How often do we find that just another person in our community was killed or assaulted? Their feet are swift to shed blood. The newspaper or you looking up at the news of the internet just is proof positive that everything that is being written here as God's indictment toward man is absolutely true. In the United States, since the turn of the 20th century, there have been twice as many citizens in our country that have been killed by murder than have been killed by all the wars that we have fought in. Did you know that? Did you know that in the United States, and this is from Arnold Barnett, Barnett, he is a Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT researcher, and he has found that you take the 50 largest cities in America, did you know that a child that has been born in, in any of these cities has a 1 in 50 chance of being killed, murdered? Did you know that? That is the statistic, 1 in 50 But not only do we find that there is in our conduct this this idea that our feet are swift to move toward shedding of blood, but you look at some of the genocides that have happened, even in our not-too-distant past. Uh, Stalin, for instance, in Russia. He doesn't get a lot of press. The Russians were very good at, like, not wanting this to be known, but Stalin actually killed 10 million individuals. 10 million people far more familiar with Nazi Germany and Hitler, with the six million Jews that were exterminated. But do you know what that is? This is all proof positive that we have feet that are swift to shed blood. Furthermore, he says, verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. Not only personally do we bring about destruction in our lives, whether it be through pornography or adultery or things that we do to our body or or items that we might abuse that lead to our own destruction, we are actually quick to bring destruction to others. And that's why he's saying, it's, what he's saying about destruction and misery in their paths, our path is one of destruction. And we, we don't have to look too far to see how many lives we have really hurt with our words and with our actions. I mean, there's anything from homosexuality, to pornography, to adultery, to fornication, to child abuse, to abuse in general, burglary, uh, vandalism, racism. It all goes to show we are desperately sick when it comes to our sin. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known. We simply don't know what it means to have peace. We'd like it. We'd really want it. But we don't have it. We don't even have peace in our own community. We got racism issues. We got people killing one another. We got hatred that's in our own community. We've got it in our country. We're not coming together. We're becoming even farther apart. You look at internationally, do we have peace internationally? We're like a ticking bomb. And it can blow up at any time. And it does. At different places, it's just all of a sudden, man, we've got another atrocity that's taken place. The path of peace they have not known. The Jewish people so desperately wanted peace. It was like ingrained in them, we are to be a people of peace. That Do you know how Jewish people, how they used to greet one another? They didn't say hi, hello, or, or when they were say, you know, signing off, they didn't say goodbye. Do you know what they said, don't they? What did they say? Shalom. Shalom. Do you know what it means? It means peace. But it's not just the absence of war or conflict. 
It is actually the peace of God. May he be evident in our relationships, in our lives, in our community. Shalom. But do we have shalom? A path of peace they've not known. And you want to know why? Look at the next verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't reverence God. They don't worship him and revere him, nor are they afraid that he's actually going to punish sin or he's going to judge it. And when he says there's no fear of God before their eyes, it's like God isn't even in their field of vision. Or you could say God's not a part of their perspective. They don't care. Come on. That's for, that's for weak people to believe in God or to think that he's going to be involved or he's supposed to be worshipped or he's actually going to do something about our sin. The fear of God is not before them. And let will just tell you this. Any society that commonly assumes that God will not discipline sin in this life nor judge it in the next, let me just tell you, they are increasingly giving themselves over to evil. And let me tell you what this looks like. Evil starts being called good. And that which is good, as God has defined it and described it, is started to be called what? Evil. Does that sound familiar? What, this is exactly what is happening in our country. That which God says is good, we've now called as evil. And it's played out in front of us every single day. And that which is absolutely evil in God's sight. We've already walked through Romans. God has clearly said some of the sins that are being paraded out there as virtuous, that are getting the attention of the White House, that actually are popularized and saying, well, we're so proud that everybody's all coming out. This is beautiful and this is wonderful and it's celebrated. God says is what? It's evil. And that is where we're at. You know why? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Some of you are familiar with a woman by the name of Kay Warren. Her husband, Rick, is a very famous pastor of Saddleback Community Church. In Christianity Today, October 2008, she wrote an article, and I want you to listen to this. She said, quote, The first time I visited Rwanda, I went looking for monsters, albeit a different category of monster, the kind that isn't relegated to B-movies. I had heard about the 1994 genocide that had left one million people dead. Do you remember that? 1994. One million people dead, tortured, raped, and viciously murdered. And somehow, I thought it would be easy to spot the perpetrators. I naively assumed I would be able to look men and women in their eyes and tell if they had been involved. I was full of self-righteous judgment. What I found left me puzzled, confused, and ultimately frightened. Instead of finding leering, menacing creatures... I met men and women who looked and behaved a lot like me. They took care of their families. They went to work. They chatted with their neighbors. They laughed. They cried. They prayed and worshipped. Where were the monsters? Where were the evildoers capable of such heinous acts? And slowly, with a deepening sense of dread, I understood the truth. There were no monsters in Rwanda. Just people like you and me. Before that trip... I can't tell you the number of times I reacted to evil I read about or witnessed by saying, I would never do that. 
But thousands of years of bloody human history prove differently. Fifty-four years of my own history prove differently. We are all proficient in our ability to conceive, plan, and execute evil. Of course, we don't call it evil when we're the ones involved, but it is. And that is the sad, tragic truth about all of us. We are all capable of the most vile of wickedness. You know, we've got the right circumstances, the right temptation. We think we can get away with it. We've been really moved toward anger at something. We are all capable of the most heinous acts of sin. We are, according to the Scripture and by proof of our own humanity, we are all under sin, and God has given us evidence. It shows up our character, our conversation, our conduct. How does humanity respond? Well, humanity's response is this. All of humanity is silent and accountable to God. Look at verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. We know that we are all sinful. When he talks about all under the law for the Jewish people, they had God's revealed word, like Romans 3, 2. And they see that they can't follow it, and they don't. And for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, just like you see in Romans 2, 15, we have the law of God written in our hearts. There is, to a degree, an understanding of God's morality, and we've violated it. We are all under the law. We are all under sin. We are under bondage to it. And that's why every mouth is closed. It's just like in this court scene, the defendant has an opportunity to speak, but you can't say a thing. Do you know why? You are absolutely silenced because the indictment is so clear. The evidence is so overwhelming. Indeed, it is the case. We are accountable to God and we are under sin. We deserve to face the penalty for our sin, which is eternal destruction. Now, people go, well, how can sin, how could any sin deserve eternal destruction? How is that, how would that work? Why is that the case? Well, leave it to a middle school junior high pastor to figure out how to present it to his junior high kids. Listen to this. He's trying to help his students understand what is taking place, why God is bringing eternal judgment against sin. He says, suppose a middle school student punches a kid in class. What happens to the kid? What happens? I get a detention, right? Some of you know, right? You go to detention. That's it. What happens, though, when you're in detention and you haul off and you hit that little junior high student, then goes and hits the teacher? Now what happens to the kid? Oh, you just ramped it up. You hit a teacher, you were suspended. Well, let's say that same kid, he's coming home from his suspension. He sees a police officer, and he hauls off and hits the police officer in the nose. He's obviously got a hitting problem. What happens to the kid? What happens to the junior high kid? You assault a police officer? Whoa. You're going to go to jail? You're a kid? You probably go to juvenile hall. You've just made your life miserable. What if several years later, the same junior high kid with the hitting problem They're out to see the President of the United States fly in. And here he is. There he is. He's walking. And that junior high student just takes, you know what? I feel like hitting someone. So he hauls off and he starts running and he is going to hit and assault the President of the United States. What is going to happen to that guy as he's running to go and hit the President? Anybody know? That's right. Immediately, 
he'll be shot. Secret service, that's what they are trained to do. You try to assault the president of the United States, they're not asking questions like, hey, what is going on here? You make a move to assault the president, you will die. And they are trained to do it, and they're very good at it. Now, all this to show that escalating consequences when you strike out against people is it, it, it's determined by the increase of authority of the person you are actually striking out against. The severity of crime is measured against the one in whom it is committed against. And when it comes to sin, you and I created in God's image for God when we sin, when we miss the mark, anything from our passiveness to our just angry, belligerent wickedness, it is all sin against a perfect loving God that created us to know him and it deserves eternal judgment. And so God gives his verdict, verse 20, that all humanity is guilty before God and aware of their sin. He says, all the world is accountable to God. You see that verse 19? Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law shows us, God's word shows us how sinful we are. That's the whole intent of what we just saw. And what it does, it can't, the law could never save you. And so the whole idea that, well, I'll just try to follow God's word better. I'm going to try to follow the law. That can never save you. The law is meant to show you your sin. It can actually bring about inward conviction, dread, guilt, shame, but it can never rescue us. And what is happening is that You've got to see how sinful you are if you were ever going to appreciate the gospel. If you think like, man, Paul's one of those guys, and he just likes to make people feel miserable. He just wants to paralyze you and how bad you are. Absolutely not. Until you see the depth of your depravity, how far sin has infiltrated your life, you will never see the depth of God's love for you in Christ revealed in the gospel. You know, we see the law, it's kind of like this. The law is like a straight line. But you look at our life, and it's like a crooked line, right? That's at least my life. Deviations, problems, sin everywhere, right? And the law, straight line, it shows us how crooked our life is. That was the intent of the law. It shows us how to live, how God desires us to live, but in actuality, we can't. Why? We're all under sin. Or it's kind of like this. The law is like a mirror. And you look in the mirror and like, whoa, lo and behold, I got mud all over my face. Right? But how many of you use the mirror to try to clean your face with? You like take the mirror and start scraping. Does anybody do that? I'm like, no one does that, right? Why? Because that, the mirror can't clean your face. You need, you need to be washed. You need to be cleansed, but the mirror can't do that. Or it's like a thermometer. And a thermometer, you use the thermometer to take your temperature, and some of you have had to do this week, and you're like, lo and behold, I'm running a fever, 102.3. But you wouldn't say, oh, man, I've got to do something about this temperature. I will eat the thermometer, and that will make me better. Does anybody do that? No, come on, Grant. The thermometer can tell you the temperature, but it can't make you well. Everybody knows that. Do you? The law shows us that we're sinful, but what? Well, I'm just going to follow it. I'm going to work my way to heaven. I'm going to make God happy. I'm going to follow his rules. I'm going to become righteous in his sight. It doesn't work that way. We don't need a teacher. We don't need a moral example. You know what we need? We need a liberator. We are dead in our sin. It's kind of like this. A lot of you have your driver's license. 
let's say you're uh, it's tomorrow morning, and oh, man, you're late for work. You know how it is? Kids weren't ready, and they were in the way, and you had a bike parked behind your car, and you know all the simple stuff, you know, and oh, you forgot this, and you throw it back into your attache, you run back in the house, and I'm really running late, oh, I've got to to make this call, I have really got to close this deal, so you get on the phone, you're driving like crazy, all this traffic, people trying to go to school, trying to go to work, people trying to go to the gym, come on, get a life, you're trying to drive, you're like, oh, school zone, ugh, and you, got, you move to the side of the road where cars are supposed to be parked if you're stalled out, and you start zipping through there, and you go flying through that school zone, you're on your phone, and you're like, whoa, there's these kids, and they're all diving, you tag a few of those, you swerve over, there's a lady on her bike, whoa, when you're out of control, you're like, oh, you're on the phone, and you crash into a storefront. You know what's going to happen, don't you? Very soon, there's going to be a police officer or two on the scene, and as soon as they can assess that you are still alive, they are going to have you out of the car. And soon you're not only going to be in jail, but you'll be before a judge. And they're going to list of all these things, your reckless driving and all the things that you've done. Like, Did you really do all that? Like, well, you know, it's a word behind and it's late. And, and the judges go, guilty. I'll tell you what. I see the smile on your face. I'm going to charge you either $15 million. You can spend the next 30 years in prison. Take your pick. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I don't have 30 years. Some of you would die in prison with 30 years. And do you have 15 million laying around? Yeah. Uh, and then the same judge, he backs away from the bench and he opens up that black cloak and he's got a suit and he pulls out his checkbook and he writes you a check for $15 million. He puts your name on it and he signs it. And he says, here, go pay your fine. How many of you would take the check? Really? I got a few, but most of you wouldn't? I'll tell you what. On a much grander scale, that's what God has done. You and I are sin. The wages of sin is death. Someone is going to pay and face God's justice for sin. That is why God has sent Christ. He is the payment for sin, and it is offered to you, but you must believe and trust. In fact, that's what we see. God's grace is bestowing his righteousness on all who believe in Jesus Christ and his redemption. And this is what we're going to look at next week. But look at verse 21. But now... Apart from the law, this didn't come from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel, and that is the theme of Romans. The theme of Romans is the transforming power of trusting in Christ and his gospel. And just to review the outline that we've been talking about, it begins with exaltation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, of the glory of Christ and his gospel. That then takes us to condemnation, the section that we have just finished, that all are under in sin and need his gospel. Then, beginning in verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5, you have justification, how God takes a sinner and makes him right before God. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 is sanctification, how we grow in the grace of of knowing Christ. Chapter 9, 10, and 11, that actually talks about how God is going to restore Israel through his gospel. And chapters 12 through 16 is transformation, how God literally changes us from the inside out that we might truly reflect ourselves as the people of God. But you know what? In order for that to be a reality, you have to face your inward condition that you're a sinner. 
In April 20th, 1999, an event that has marked our country, and many of you are familiar with it, Columbine High School, two kids, Dylan Kobold and Eric Harris, they killed 12 of their fellow classmates, one of their teachers, and injured 24 others before taking their own lives. At, Ten years after the event, Dylan's mother, Susan Klebold, actually wrote an article in which she offered her perspective on these terrible events. She writes how she was perceived as an accomplice to the killings simply because she had raised a monster in a newspaper survey that was actually taken shortly after those killings. 83% of the respondents believe that the killings happened because Dylan and Eric's parents did not teach them proper values. But listen to what she writes. Quote, Dylan was a product of my life's work, but his final actions implied that he had never been taught the fundamentals of right and wrong. There was no way to atone for my son's behavior. And she goes on to write, in raising Dylan, I taught him how to protect himself from a host of dangers, lightning, snake bites, head injuries, skin cancer, smoking, drinking, sexually transmitted diseases, drug addiction, reckless driving, even carbon monoxide poisoning. It never occurred to me that the gravest danger to him, and as it turned out to many others, might come from within. You see, the tragedy of total depravity is only overcome by the triumph of Jesus Christ. And will you have him? What I'd like to do right now is God's got your full attention. I'd like you to pause and bow your heads and really think, am I truly trusting Christ or indeed, am I still going it alone in my own sinfulness? In just a minute then, I will close this in prayer. But you talk to God. God, you lay out in your word the tragedy of total depravity. And it's us. It's me. And for those who have never trusted Christ, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I see it, and I, I turn from my sin and my self-centeredness. I trust in Jesus, and I put my faith in him as Savior from my sin and Lord of my life. And for all of us, may we rejoice that we have a Savior on nothing that we have done, but everything you've accomplished through him, his death, and his resurrection. May our lives be filled with worship, because our lives have been oriented and saved by the gospel of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.